Good morning, Senators. How are you doing today? Can we just thank our worship team and our tech team again for that? So, so good. I have to let you guys know that during first service, in the middle of that set, I was so struck by the songs that Levi and our team picked that I actually realized the mid-serve, and I needed to deviate a little bit from the message. And so I've already gotten a chance to do that. It wasn't a complete train wreck, but there is going to be a portion of this message where I need to take a sidestep from what is on your note sheet, just because of being compelled of, of what we sang this morning and staying true to, to what I think God wants to communicate. So anyways, my name is Jed. If you're a guest with us today, we are just so thrilled that you would join us for a portion of your weekend. If you're a regular attender here, welcome back. If you weren't here earlier in the service when Britt Sipe, our lead pastor, talked about what is going on in the room, I just want to make sure you guys know this is not an Oompa Loompa-themed birthday party. All of these orange balloons across our worship center are representative of walkers and runners in the L.A. Marathon. We have 50 Sunridgians who are embarking on the half or the full, and they are raising and have raised almost $100,000 for clean water. That is 2,000 individuals who will never have to worry about clean water for the rest of their lives. And so in lieu of that, I wore our Vision t-shirt today. I was a little chilly, so I put a jacket on. It's Sunridge's mission to help people find and follow Jesus, and we accomplish that by deepening faith, bringing hope, and living love. And that is what our people are doing today, and I'm so, so thrilled for that. All right. So it's Sunday morning, and we're in a series entitled Gideon, and the tagline is, When Life is Bigger Than You. And so for the last two weeks, and now in our third, we've been looking at the life of a man named Gideon who is found in our Old Testament in the book of Judges, and we are studying how God does remarkable things through ordinary people who trust Him. But as we've already seen in Gideon's life, trust is definitely an issue of his. It's not his strong suit, and maybe you can relate to that. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to get us started in Judges chapter 7, verse 1, without giving us much of context. And after that first verse, I'll drop in with some things that will be helpful for you, whether or not you've been here or this is your first Sunday. So here we go. Judges chapter 7, verse 1, it's up on the screens. If you have your Bibles, you can also turn there. It says this, Then Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and all the troops that were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod. And the camp of Midian was north of them, below the hill of Moreh, in the valley. So we can pause there. Your first fill in the blank for the flow of this story is, This is understandable. If you are here last week, a little recap of what Britt talked about is Gideon asked God for a sign, multiple signs, in fact, that he could successfully help the Israelites defeat the Midianites. And God gave him a multitude of signs, and Gideon felt that reassurance or the assurance, and so he went forth and did as God told him he would be able to do, take over the Midianites. But what is this? How do we find ourselves in this place? Let's talk first about our main character's name, is Gideon. The antagonists of this story are the Midianites, a confederate of tribes from the east who have been a geographical bully of sorts. For the last seven years, they have been pillaging and rummaging and destroying the crops, killing the livestock as the Israelites as they attempt to inhabit the promised land of Canaan. And Gideon is one of 15 judges that we're introduced to in this book 
called Judges. But when you think about the word Judges, maybe you think about the people's court or Judge Judy screaming, you idiot, as she slammed her gavel atop the bench in the courtroom. But that is not the picture that we want. When we think about Judges, consider the word deliverer. In other words, there's a situation that needs deliverance, and these champions, these heroes are appointed by God over the span of a hundred or ten years or so in Israel's burgeoning existence before they appoint a king to guide them out of periods of unrest and violence because of their apathy that has led them to fall into idolatry. And so in week one, Britt talked about this cycle of the Israelites being apathetic and then the consequences befalling them, and then them pleading to God for deliverance, him sending these judges, these deliverers, them finding blessing, and then falling back in that cycle of apathy again. You and I all know what it's like to walk through life, and when we're in a state of panic or concern, we throw our hands up to God and ask for his help, and as soon as life gets good, we tend to forget, yes? So that is where we are. Outside of the context of this passage, the world itself finds a transitional moment in history. Maybe you've heard about the three-age system when we talk about history, the Stone Age, the Bronze Age, and then the, the Diamond Age? No, the Iron Age. History's been a long time, my friends. The Stone Age, the Bronze Age, and the Iron Age. And as we head into the 11th century, historians and anthropologists note that there's a collapse in technology that's previously used. So bronze is the primary usage for tools and war or weapons of war. But as we head into the Iron Age, nations and peoples are discovering how to forge from iron new weapons of warfare and new tools. And even though it's very unlikely that the Midianites or the Israelites would have had access to these tools of warfare, the reason why I note that is because throughout the known world, humanity is about to enter into a time of war and conquest and land acquisition and superpower growth unlike anything it has ever seen. So if you're wondering why there's so much war in the Old Testament, that just so happens to be the place that humanity is in. Does that make sense? So here we are, chapter 7, Gideon now with 32,000 men leading the Israelites to war against these Midianites, these bullies in the valley. Verse 2, the Lord said to Gideon, the troops with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand. Israel would only take the credit away from me, saying, my own hand has delivered me. Now, therefore, proclaim this in the hearing of the troops. Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home. Thus Gideon sifted them out, 22,000 returned, and 10,000 were men. Okay. Yeah, there should be some chuckles here. This is getting uncomfortable. That's the second fill-in-the-blank for you. In chapter 8, verse 10, we can deduce that the Midianite army roughly composes 135,000 soldiers. Gideon, who is the self-proclaimed weakest in his family tribe, has now somehow enlisted 32,000 of his fellow countrymen from a handful of tribes. We're not talking about the bravest of warriors, and it's clear here. Because God says there are too many, too many, 32,000 against 135, but too many, so that Israel would take the credit from God. So he says, I'm going to whittle down your army. And he does this by giving people a chance. 
So I don't know about you, but if I were not a very strong person and I were going into a battle against many strong people, I'd probably take the free pass to go home. And so 10,000 people do that. No, 22,000. 10,000 remain. So that's what we're left with here. Let's keep reading. Next, would you put that up? But the Lord said to Gideon, there are still too many men. Take them down to the water, and I will send them out for you there. All right, so I'm going to leave this up on the screen uh, just so that you can see what's happening here. But I'm going to attempt to just show you how this was taught to me when I was a kid in Sunday school. How many of you guys have heard this story before? Some of you? Okay, well, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to teach it to you like I was taught as a kid. I ought to make mention right now that yesterday was March Mania. I want to thank Ken Muncy and Tony Lewis and all the great volunteers for putting on our three-on-three basketball tournament. Cornhole, bocce ball, mini golf, table tennis, barbecue was awesome. I played a lot of basketball, so I'm moving slow. All right? Here we go. God says, take them down to the water. And here's how I'm going to sift them out. You are going to see how they drink. So when I was a kid... We were shown that a bunch of them would go down like this. Pat, are you back there? Good, got me? Okay. And they would stick their head down into the water. Now, what's funny is from this position, we see lapping like a dog, and that's, we, that's how we think dogs lap, yes? Right? Dogs lap like this. But what we have here in the text is an explanation of this actually being contrary to how a dog would lap, even though we as humans associate being on all fours. So this position of someone being head down seems to communicate that these people are not very aware, and they're probably not the warriors God would want, right? They're the ones with their head down in the water. The others that lap like a dog are shown to take a stance like this, where they cup water, and there, they lap like a dog. It's, it's really funny. I got on a tangent earlier this week, and I don't know why. I YouTubed dogs lapping water in slow motion. <laughs> and it was incredible. I should have taken a clip, but it was like, blah, blah, blah. So that's what's communicated here. Now, what's fascinating about how I was taught this story is that I was taught that the people that took this position, that cupped and lapped like a dog, they were the elite of the elite. They were the elite of the elite because they took a position where, in military strategy, they were prepared for the enemy to unexpectedly come. Now, if you were here, you couldn't see it coming, but if you were here, some way, somehow, you'd be able to react quicker. But here's the flaw with that dichotomy and us saying that the 300 were the elite of the elite. I'm taking this stance for a little bit because I'm not quite sure how quickly to get up. So I'm going to sit here for a little bit. Last Last uh, sermon, I stayed in a squatted position, terrible position, so I'm down on one knee. The problem with the 300 being the elite of the elite is suddenly the emphasis is placed on who? Who? The 300, the warriors. And what did God say he was attempting to do? He was whittling down the army so that what? The Israelites would not take the credit, and if we retell this story as if it's King Leonidas at the Battle of Thermopylae, suddenly it's about the 300, but this is not about the 300. So here's how I term this part. This is getting, or officially, unbelievable, because what God is doing here 
is he's making this army so small, 450 to 1 odds, that even though we want to make it about these warriors, it's not going to be about them. And if you read a little bit further, they're armed with jars and trumpets. And I love the brass section of the orchestra just as much as you do, but gosh, 300 people with trumpets and jars versus an army of 135,000? Is this not absurd? See, what God does there is he doesn't take the elite. He just takes the few that do it the most unconventional way. And that seems to be how God operates. He works in the unexpected, in the unconventional. He does work through those that we would actually see as the weakest and the lowly, the incapable. Maybe someone like Gideon or someone like you or me. So here's where I'd like to start to sidestep from the text with a question that will set us up for some subsequent application. Did you notice that Gideon's words aren't recorded? Now, if you're quick to say, well, Jed, he obviously spoke, I agree, okay? This is not a literary observation, or literal observation, excuse me. It's, it is a literary observation. In other words, for some reason, the author of Judges, perhaps Samuel, he redacts Gideon's dialogue with God, and he shows Gideon to just move forward. And seemingly in trust, goes through this absurd process of whittling down the army. But the reason why I think that's an unfaithful reading to the text to say that this is a moment of triumph and trust for Gideon is if you come back next week and you read a few more verses down, you will see this is not a moment of courage and trust for Gideon. This is an all-time high of fear. Britt's going to talk about that next week, so come back. I'm not going to go into that part of the story. Gideon's words aren't recorded, and it's counter to how he's been acting for the whole of his introduction here. He's constantly talking to God. He's constantly asking for reassurance. He's constantly trying to make sure what he's doing is the right thing. But in this set of the text, he goes silent. So I want to ask you a question. What has left you? stunned to the point of silence. What's become unbelievably absurd? What seems insurmountable? What piece of your life seems so much bigger than what you're capable of and maybe even what you think God is capable of? What's left you questioning and wondering about his goodness? Doubting his faithfulness? What diagnosis or prognosis, what call from the doctor has immediately changed the sense in your whole being or the room that you sit in? What type of darkness in the night have you been unable to sleep through because you lie there restless considering whether or not you can pay your mortgage or your rent or your bills? What anxiety has crippled you to the point of clutching the steering wheel in your car as you wonder how you can re-enter your workspace or your school? 
What relationship has left you so quiet because every time you've attempted to speak or be heard out, you have been shut down? What addiction? What hurt? What medical issue? What family member? Estranged? What loneliness? I don't know what it is for you. But if I have been stunned to the point of silence, which I've shared from this stage before, last month I got to share my testimony and moments of trauma for me, culminating my mom passing from cancer at 15. If that's just me, and there are several hundred more in this room, what collective silence have we sat in? So here's where I had to deviate a little bit in first service. When we sang during that first set, I'm finding myself at a loss for words. And the funny thing is, it's okay. I looked up at Levi, and he didn't see me at that time, but I, I had a tear stroll down my cheek because I realized that as I prepared for this moment, I didn't give due justice enough to just being complete, completely quiet before God. think about Psalm 46, verse 10, be still and know that I am God. The fascinating thing about the context of that is, is it, it literally in Hebrew communicates stop warring or cease warring and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations, it continues to say. The idea communicated there is to give up fighting. And so I just have to say that I found myself silent before God just in the last few weeks. Stuff that I told Mallory earlier this week, I, I wasn't planning on talking about this stuff because I could just go through it. And I feel like, you know, people can fill in their own blanks. But a few weeks ago on a Tuesday night, I was with my youngest son, Truy, Truitt. And uh, that kid, he's given us uh, some, some issues with, with uh, his health. Uh, he's been pretty healthy, but a few months ago, at the end of a worship service, I pulled out my phone and got a text. I'd seen a text I missed from Mallory that said, call me as soon as you can. And I'd missed it because I was leading worship. And so I called her. I'm putting away my guitar back here. Worship team members are walking around. And Mallory says, hey, I don't want you to worry, um, but truly had a seizure, and we need to take him to the emergency room. Now, Mallory has grown up in a home where seizures were a part of her norm. It's something that she saw in her family unit, and so I'm just thankful that I wasn't there. But I'll tell you, as our worship team members are saying, hey, are you okay? I, I, I didn't know what to say. I, I, I just said, I've got to go. Hopped in my car, drove home, took Trudy to the emergency room, and Pastor Britt was super kind to spend several hours with us there and talk through feeble seizures even before uh, the, the doc got there to explain it. Um, Truly actually had two seizures just a week ago, uh, again, and we're finding that uh, it doesn't take much of a temp. He had a 99 and seized up again. So if you think about that little kid, uh, he's, actually, he's at the doctor right now, I think. You can pray for that little one. So anyways, I'm at PetSmart holding Truly. We're getting cricket for our lizard, James. Good name, right? And uh, as I'm about to enter the store, I get a text from a friend who says, Jed, I just wanted to let you know 
uh, that we got the, the results back from a scan, and his wife uh, has been diagnosed with some form of cancer. And cancer is like a trigger word for me. And here I am going on a PetSmart trying to get crickets for James, and I'm like welling up in the eye. And so I do as fast as I can to get in and out and grab those crickets and get in the car. And as I'm driving home, I just don't have the words. And I just start weeping. I start weeping. And as we're finally getting up close to our home, the words come out, and they're definitely not mine. You talk about the Holy Spirit interceding for us. I don't know what spurred these, but I just start saying, it's not your fault. It's not your fault. Which is a big deal for me because much of my life has been spent saying, God, this is your fault. They say when it rains, it pours. And I've come up with a saying, when it hurricanes, it rains. Because, uh, you know, we weren't finished. The very next day, uh, Jake Hewitt, one of my close friends and mentors, he came and spoke here several months ago. Um, Jake got a hold of my best friend Hewitt and said, hey, I don't have time to get to Jed right now. But before this gets out on social media and I start talking about, would you just, would you just give him a call and let him know? And so Hewitt had called me up and delivered the word that Jay, who several months ago had spoken about a miraculous removal of a brain tumor, uh, they found another tumor in his brain. And so Jay has been diagnosed with brain cancer. And I got to see Jay uh, just the other Saturday, and we were in a, in a setting where we were celebrating the two-year passing anniversary, actually, of, of one of our dear friends. And uh, he walked in the room. He had just finished speaking at your Belinda, sharing about what had happened. And, and we just gave each other a big hug, and first things out of our word simultaneously, I love you, and, uh, and I just said, we don't have to talk about this right now, and he just said thanks, and later on, he was only there for about 15 minutes, he said, you know, it, it's kind of weird, like, yeah, it's, uh, you go on stage, and you tell people to trust in God, and they cheer, and you clap, and then you walk off. And uh, I don't want to speak for Jay. He is a man of great faith. I am sure that he is walking in step with God and, and holding to him. But what is faith without doubt? What's hope without despair? What are words of praise without silence and an articulation of lament? I want to thank our worship team for giving me that chance this morning to reflect just briefly on it being okay to be silent before God. So it's 11.18. I need to sprint through the rest of this message because I didn't plan for that piece. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to try and do this as quickly as possible because at some point it is important for us to move to a place of speaking. So here you're filling the blanks. Number one, when life's obstacles leave you at a loss for words, begin by affirming weakness but in trust that you'll discover his power. When the angel and the messenger of the Lord comes to Gideon in chapter 6, one of his initial responses of Gideon, he says, but sir, how can I deliver Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. He's quick to admit, I'm not the right dude. There isn't much here. How am I going to be the one that delivers Israel? He affirms it right out of the gate. 
And when I think about strength and weakness, I'd be remiss if I didn't take us to 2 Corinthians, which I think several of you perhaps considered when you saw that phrasing because the Apostle Paul, in his letter to the Corinthians, writes in chapter 12, verse 8, as he talks about a thorn in his flesh that we don't know exactly what it is, but I, I think verse 10 gives us the answer. But here's what it says. Three times I appealed to the Lord about this, that it would leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am content with weaknesses. And here's where I think the thorn is flesh. It, it encapsulates these things. Insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities for the sake of Christ. For whenever I am weak, then I am strong. And it's not comfortable for us as human beings, especially in our day and age, to speak about our lives and what is happening in a way that doesn't put forth togetherness and everything being okay and life being good. But what we find throughout Scripture is that God works in those who are able to humbly admit that they do not have it all together. That in the midst of brokenness, you actually have a real picture of what is taking place. And in the kingdom, just as Jesus would allude to in the Sermon on the Mount when he speaks forth the Beatitudes, what we expect to be strong is turned on its head. And it is those who are in the lowly of places that will be brought up. And if you are in a position right now of weakness and hurt, and pain, may I remind you that in the kingdom, that's where God meets you the most. So here's what's fascinating about this being in Scripture and what they're discovering in the realm of neuroscience. Now, I'm not a neuroscientist, obviously, but I've spent a decent amount of my life reading up on this stuff, particularly in college when I studied youth and family ministry, and psychology was an important part of our major because Adolescent development and what was happening up here was critical to how we would spend time with our teenagers. And so there is a portion deep in our brain where we have two things called the amygdalae, in singular the amygdala. And inside the temporal lobe, these two little pieces of nuclei are responsible for the fear and the flight and the fight and the freeze response that we have as human beings, the cascading of biological responses when we sense threat around us. And it's important for that portion of the brain to hijack our capacity to think in our prefrontal cortex logically and rationally because if a snake were to jump out as I were taking a run, which I do not do, but if a snake were to jump out, it wouldn't be great for my brain to go, hmm, I wonder if that snake is poisonous or if it's just, no, to jump out of harm's way is a great response. But the amygdala is incited and aroused in our day-to-day -day lives just in the presence of things that we feel compromises our well-being and our safety. In a recent study at UCLA, neuroscientists took individuals and they showed them photographs that they imagined would elicit fear and anxiety and as they imaged and mapped out the brain, they saw that every time they, they put forth a picture that they assumed would elicit fear or anxiety, that portion of the brain would start firing. And it would light up. In their second round, however, they did something interesting. 
They showed the people pictures, but this time they asked them to articulate what it was that they felt based off of those images. And you know what happened when the people spoke what resided inside of them? The fear or the anxiety, whatever it was, that part of the brain, the amygdala, began to decrease in its response. And the prefrontal cortex began to work itself through. We're finding it in neuroscience, my friends, but it's right here. Affirm the weakness. What I would say connected to that, however, is it's not about us staying in a place of woundedness. It's not about us just talking about all the terrible things that we've gone through and the feelings associated with that. There has to be a turn towards the one who's promised to deliver us, and that's where we're going next. So when life leaves you at a loss for words, remember that deliverance is about the deliverer, and he has spoken. I love when Hebrews chapter 1 says that in former days God spoke through his prophets, but in these last days he has spoken, us, spoken to us through the Son. I love that God brings us towards himself. Because aren't you and I prone, as we touched on earlier in this message, to find ourselves in these seasons of life where things are okay, where maybe our finances are somewhat in order, our relationships aren't upheaval, whatever it is, we feel stability. And it's like, yeah, yep, I did that. I'm such an accomplished individual. How quick are we to forget those moments when we were at wit's end and we could not do anything about our present circumstance but be silent and then cry out to God. This message isn't about the 300. It's about the one. He's spoken through his son. And if you and I forget that it's about Christ and his accomplishment on the cross and from the grave, this invitation to new life, then we have missed it. Here's your last fill in the blank. When life's obstacles leave you at a loss for words, be inspired by the example set before you to endure. I'm going to continue in the Hebrews book and narrative. You'll see it up on the screens. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 36 says this, For ye need endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. For yet, in a very little while, the one who is coming will come and will not delay, but my righteous one will live by faith. My soul takes no pleasure in anyone who shrinks back, but we are not among those who shrink back and so are lost, but among those who have faith and so are saved. Skipping to chapter 11, verse 32, And what more should I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched raging fire, escaped the edge of the sword, one strength out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. 
And then chapter 12, verse 1, it says this. It's a different translation on the screen. But as a kid, we memorize, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, and let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. Consider him who endured such hostility from sinners when you yourself are to grow weary and lose heart. This is not about Gideon. And it's not about me. And it's not about you. This is about the one who empowers and works through frail and feeble and broken people like me and you. It's not about the 300, it's about the one. It's not about me just contributing my weakness and brokenness. It's about the one who delivers. It's not about me taking my sin and my shame and being stuck there in that mire. It's about the one who brings me from death to life. John chapter 5, verse 24, Jesus says, Anyone who hears these words and believes the one who sent me has eternal life and will not come under judgment but has passed from death to life. There's something that is happening right here, right now, where you and I are able to receive the life the abundant life that God has for us made possible through his son. And it does not look like everything being perfect. It looks like his perfection. It looks like his capacity and my inability. It looks like me saying, I'm going to cling to you. And I'm going to steward and I'm going to do my best. And I'm going to learn from your endurance and the hard work and the dedication and putting one foot in front of the other. I'm going to look at the example of all those before me. But ultimately, Jesus, when I see the finish line, you're the one that I'm aiming at. And every single one of these balloons that looks at our people who are running and walking in the marathon communicates a beautiful picture of the pain and the hurt. And the journey of us taking those steps when we want to give up. But my friends, he has not given up on us. And if that's the truth, if it's about him, then I would say that the most important thing for you and I to hear today is that whatever it is in your life that is screaming out to God, that is saying, get away from him, that he is distant, he is incapable, he can't do it. May the Holy Spirit inspire every single one of us to hear the truth above those lies and know that is false, he is able, and we can cling to him, our deliverer. Let's pray.